Do you sometimes feel overwhelmed by the emotions that show up when you open your phone? Do you worry about your behavior, your choices, what you buy, even the way that you feel about the world being nudged this way or that way by algorithms which are designed to keep you in a state of engagement, usually by eliciting feelings of fear or anger, feelings you probably didn't have before you opened your phone. You're aware these things are shaped by algorithms powered through artificial intelligence. AI is what we'll call it for today. And you've seen The Matrix, so you know how scary that can be. But what if I told you there's a way to make sure AI can be a thing that catapults our society into a place of abundance and greater quality of life for more people than ever? My guest this week is going to answer all those questions and tell us all about the last part. Roland Gerke is Professor of Effective Computing at the Faculty of Science and Technology, University of Canberra, where he leads the Human-Centred Technology Research Program. He's an expert in AI, and he's fantastic to speak with. We're going to get right to him. But before we do, we do need to play some ads. Now, this show is uh, free to listen to, but not free to make. So to make sure that we can keep playing it and making it, we need to play some ads. There is an ad-free version of this show, which I'll tell you about a little later on. However, these ads are hand-selected so the clients don't offend you or anyone who might listen to this show. Oh, honestly, I tick so many boxes and then untick them all going, no, I don't want gambling ads or horse racing ads or gun ads or petrol ads or diesel ads. No. Cigarette ads. No. Vape ads. No. So hopefully you'll enjoy these commercials. Some of them read by me, maybe. We'll be right back with Roland. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I can go uh, into a hardware store and, and buy a hammer. Um, I don't need a license for that. Um, you know, no one's going to ask me, you know, have you been trained in how to use that? Or so. uh, now, most of us would hopefully agree a hammer is a useful tool. You know, I can fix things around the house. I can, whatever I want to do, but I could also use it theoretically at least to, um, you know, whack someone on the head with it and, and do some serious damage. Now, we as society over years and decades and long time have basically developed this understanding that whacking someone on the head with a hammer is not a good idea. That's not, that's not an acceptable use of a hammer. And that conversation is what we now need to have and, and what's starting around, let's say, in the broad sense, AI and then smart technology and so on. What is an acceptable use? Technology has advanced further and much more quickly than our conversations about, well, hang on, <laughs> what should we actually be doing with this? That was Professor Roland Girk. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this is Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Aisha Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here. This is a tri-weekly podcast that is just here to do what it says on the box to help you make today better than yesterday. And we do that by having conversations with people from all walks of life, from all over the world, some of them experts in their field, and every conversation has got something in it that is going to help your day-to-day feel better than the one you had yesterday. It's a guarantee. There's episodes that go all the way back to 2013, and we're here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest, and Fridays, I'm here with you. I am Osha Ginsberg. I am a TV host, I'm a podcaster, an author, an on-stage storyteller, an ordinary guitar player, a tricky behind-the-TV HDMI import port finder, I am a seer of psychologists. I'm a seer of psychiatrists. I'm a taker of meds from my pharmacist. Things that all help my mental health. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. And I'm easy to find. Send Osher email at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, where I was dancing this week. Uh, Osher Ginsberg on Instagram. Look, I don't normally get too chatty on a Monday. I normally save those for Fridays, but I just did quickly want to have a chat about the Australian election. If you're listening to this, I'm recording this the day after the Australian election and I have a beautiful cup of tea that my wife made me. Hang on. Oh man, that is good. I guess one thing I've learned about managing my mental health over the years, one thing that I use every day, is that feelings aren't facts. I may be overwhelmed with the feeling of anxiety or fear or betrayal or this person doesn't like me or this person must like me. I may be overwhelmed with those feelings, but those feelings aren't facts. And I've learned to, sometimes I don't do it, but I've learned to try as hard as I can to check myself, to check evidence. Is there evidence that aligns with those feelings that helps those feelings make sense? And I've learned to look for evidence that can back up those feelings. Because without evidence, and that might be asking somebody else, what do you think? Or reading something or trying to find a fact. Without evidence, feelings just feelings. And they're just information. It's just information. It's just sensation. It's a way of dealing with a situation. And you know what? There's always a different way to deal with a situation. It's even a way to choose how to feel about a situation if you can't change the situation. If our brains are working well, we can choose to change how we feel about a situation. So I've worked hard to just try and find evidence when I need when I'm overwhelmed with feelings. And over the past few years, Oh boy, I've had some pretty intense feelings. 
Because in Australia, we've been told by our leaders, not just through their words, but through their actions and their policies. And to be honest, a lot of the uh, media outlets that support those actions and policies. We've been told by these people that if we care about climate action, we're an outlier. We don't understand economics. We're a bloody lefty greenie who hates cash and loves koalas. You can love cash and koalas at the same time. I promise you it's true. If we care about women, the role of women in our society and how women need to be protected in our community, we've been told that's simply not important. We've been told that it doesn't matter. It will never matter. We've been told, like we've seen it, it can get catastrophically bad, incredibly bad, horrifically bad. And still our leaders will say, well, we're lucky that uh, you people marching because it's so bad and you want change, you're lucky that you didn't get shot for doing that. We've been told that if we have empathy for people in our community who are marginalised or who have less than we have, for those who come to our door seeking shelter from the horrors of war, hoping to start a new life and give back to the country that lets them in, we've been told that kind of thinking is dangerous, there's no room for that, and it doesn't matter. And we've actually seen that it is perfectly normal and acceptable for our leaders to be deliberately cruel to the most vulnerable people in our community for their political gain. And some of those people are children, that it's, it's okay to behave in a way that is deliberately cruel to children. We've seen all that. We've been told, we've been shown, and to be honest, a lot of media outlets have reinforced the false idea that these things were normal. And we've been made to feel by that kind of noise and that messaging that if we want things to be different, we are not normal. And worse, we don't understand we don't understand what's best for our country and we're not with the majority. Oh, you're alone out there thinking like that, you bloody person over there. You're lucky to even be here. Even though you're not towing the line, you've got an Australian passport, therefore you're allowed to stay. And that, those, those can be intense feelings, yeah? But on Saturday night in Australia, we got a whole fucking truckload of evidence that proves all of those feelings that we might be alone and feel like we're alone and that we're an outlier and that we don't know and we don't understand and it's bad to care. we got a huge amount of evidence to prove that is not true. Evidence that proves the majority of people in our country actually really, really care about climate action. That the majority of people in our country care about inequality. That the majority of people in our country care about empathy. And I'll just put this out there. I'm going to speculate that the majority of people in our country perhaps don't like being treated with contempt by gaslighting liars. On Saturday night, we showed our leaders that we, as a country, we have pretty good boundaries. Yep, I'm not okay with being treated that way. I'm going to say no. I was so happy I did a dance. <laughs> but now, after the dance, now the work begins. For too long, all of the things I've just been talking about, they've only been hoped for, all right? But now we have to action those things. That's going to take work, but that's work I think we can manage. I couldn't be more grateful to have had the chance to connect with three of the incredible, incredible independents that got elected, uh, Kylie Tink, Monique Ryan, and Allegra Spender. Those episodes are a quick scroll back through this podcast feed. Please have a listen if you'd like to get to know them better. I, um, I'm personally wondering if we'll see a Kylie Tink v Peter Dutton rematch, but I don't know. 
you'll hear that story in her podcast. The maths going into this election were that Australia needed three independent MPs voted in to the lower house to break the deadlock that the fossil fuel industry has on our parliament. And as of me recording this at four in the afternoon, Australia voted in seven independents, more than double the amount that we needed. Queensland flipped two seats green. Fucking hell, Greensland. And so far, as of right now, so far, not one person from One Nation or the United Australia Party got a seat in the lower house. It's incredible to think about. But when you look at the numbers, it's, it's also very, very important to realise that between One Nation and the United Australia Party, there were over a million people that voted for those parties. That's over a million of our neighbours, our family, our friends, people we work with, people we sit next to in traffic, people who we talk to at the supermarket, people we see at our kids' sports days. And over a million people truly believe that the best path forward for this country was what those parties were offering. So, again, that's where the real work starts. That's over a million people who might be worried about the future, might be worried. It's up to those who voted for change to put the work in and show as many of those people who are willing to notice. I understand that many aren't willing to notice, but as many of them that are willing to notice, it's important that we work to show those people who are afraid or worried about what's happened and worried about change, we've got to show those people that the change that has been voted for is going to be worth it, and yes, for even them. All right, that's enough from me. Let me tell you about my guest today, all right? Roland Girk is a professor of effective computing at the Faculty of Science and Technology at the University of Canberra. And that's where he leads the Human-Centred Technology Research Program. His research is, is, is fascinating. His research interests are in effective computing, machine learning, computer vision, human-computer interaction, and, and multimodal signal processing. He has been involved as an author or a co-author in more than 150 peer-reviewed publications. That's a lot of sciencing, all right? Roland and I first crossed paths when I had the extraordinary privilege to work on a documentary about um, mental health and suicide with SBS. His research work that I spoke to him about was developing AI that could recognise body language on CCTV as a way to keep at-risk people safe on train platforms. And that fascinated me. I just had to talk to him more. Now, as you'll hear, he's absolutely brilliant, worthy of someone who's called Professor. It's a great chat with someone who knows more about the ethics and the philosophy surrounding artificial intelligence than anyone I have ever spoken to. We talk about the incredible possibility that AI could have in improving outcomes for people all around the world. And of course, look, anyone who's tried to take an iPad off of a kid knows very well that these devices that we all have, are pow- you're listening to me right now with one. These devices are powerful tools of manipulation. And so we get into that as well, which means that Roland and I, we do talk about self-harm, we talk about suicide, we talk about eating disorders, sexual abuse, and the grooming of vulnerable people, including the grooming of children. We can't talk about AI without talking about all that it does, hopefully, so that we can also have a good conversation, an informed conversation about what we'd like it not to do. So, enjoy this chat with Professor Roland Gerk. How are you today, Roland? You good? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. How are you? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, man. I'm okay. It's uh, I don't know, February 2022, and uh, the, the 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 time continues to move forward. Uh, at least our perception of it does. <laughs> it certainly does. Yeah. Older, yeah. older, older, and, and wiser. You look at you look somewhere very uh, academic. Where are you right now? I'm right now at the University of Canberra. Uh, the ANU, is that where you are? No, you know, there's more than one university in Canberra, actually. This, no. Uh, I know. You lie. I you know. tell me lies. Yeah, there's actually four universities here, so everyone knows the ANU, but um, the, the local ACT one is the University of Canberra. All right. And uh, what do you, what's, your, what's your job there? What do you do there? Yeah, so I'm uh, part of the uh, Faculty of Science and Technology here, and um, I'm a professor of affective computing. Uh, and as such, I teach into our programs uh, around sort of data science, um, artificial intelligence, engineering, computer science in general. And then we do uh, research on, uh, well, a whole host of interesting things. And maybe we'll get time to talk about them today. Well, uh, look, I, this, is my, this is a podcast, but people might have heard by... Uh, some of the vowels that you're saying that you've been here a while, but you might not have started here. I'm an immigrant. I came here when I was a baby. Um, where, what part? Of, how far away from where you began life are you right now? Oh, pretty much, you know, the other side of the world, you know. So yes, uh, <laughs> not very hard to tell from my accent. Um, so you know, I was born and bred in in Germany, um, northeastern Germany, which uh, probably doesn't mean much to people, let's say. But if you if you roughly know where Berlin is, and you go straight north until you hit the water, the Baltic Sea, that's kind of where I'm from. Um, which you know used to be um, the old East Germany in that sense. You know? So um, yeah, and then I came here f- in 1998. So you know, it's been a while here. You know, but yeah, hang on a second. So you. You were brought up in. You were brought up in East Germany. You were brought up under communism. Uh, socialism, to be technically correct, but yes, yeah. So for the first, social, sorry, know it's, you know, we could go very much go into that. You know, the difference between socialism and communism. But yeah, um, no, just all, all jokes aside. Yeah, so the first seventeen years of my life, um, I spent. I was there, and obviously became the reunited Germany after that. Um, and yeah, and then well, eight years later, I came to Australia. Well, hang on a sec. Well, we'll. we'll Plenty in there. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get to my question about whether or not you watched David Hasselhoff on the night, but we'll get to that. Um, I've never spoken to someone who, who, who well, I've, I've spoken to a, a band from that part of the world, but we didn't get a chance to discuss this. But I'm fascinated to know how old were you before you realised that what was happening in your street, in your neighbourhood, in your suburb was different to how the rest of a lot of the world worked? Oh, fairly young in that sense, you know. So, so as a as a nutshell of of geography, sort of you know of the size. So, um, the whole of Germany as it is these days uh, is about one and a half times the size of Victoria, and uh, East Germany is about a third of that. So, roughly speaking, a half of the size of Victoria. Now, then you squeeze sort of um, seventeen million into East Germany and um, around sixty five million into West Germany or the rest of the other Germany, so the total is about 82 million. So that gives an idea. It's a, it's this tiny, tiny country in the Austrian sense, you know, that's uh, only, you know, over, uh, was it 350 kilometers long or so and, and a couple of hundred kilometers wide, and <laughs> that's all there else to it. Um, so what that means was um, you had a, a, a large 
well, more than 90% of, of the area was basically covered by uh, TV stations from the other side, so to speak, as well. So we had, oh, right. uh, you know, as much as you can be educated in that sense about real life from TV coverage, <laughs> and obviously that, that's a, um, only a, a partial picture of it. Uh, so we knew, you know, certainly there was, there was more to the world of it. And also I think, you know, perhaps it's worthwhile to... Um, Counter that notion that you know, yes, it was uh, East Germany behind the Iron Curtain or not, I'm sorry, but it's not a. When I grew up, it was not a kind of oh, there was a, I don't know, an armed policeman or a soldier standing at every corner and and you know uh, waiting you know to shoot you down. <laughs> so that that's not you know. So I mean you know people grow up, they go to school, they 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 laugh, they cry, they fall in love, um, they you know get married, they have kids, they you know all, all the normal things in life just happen as much there. So um, and then certainly you know I, I grew up in a household um, both academically but also medically oriented. Um, so in that sense, uh, education was always a big part of that. Um, and we, you know, we traveled a lot uh, through the Eastern Bloc uh, as much as was possible. And, and so so we you know. Uh, Certainly had an idea there was a way more to it, and, and um, often very frank conversations as, as well. So yeah, so it's not the kind of you know this is a prison you know of, of some form. No. You know, so. um, and you know you you got to have your favorite sports club. You have your you know dancing. You have your you know uh, your little wins and your your cries and all that and so. So I think it's in that sense it's a it might almost sound like a very mundane life or a very normal life. Um, and I should also perhaps say that. When I grew up, uh, I'm sure it probably was different in the 1950s and 1960s, but, you know, I grew up in the 1970s and 80s, so, so I did not experience a time where shops were empty, you know, so perhaps if you have right. the picture of parts of the Soviet Union where, where there was nothing to eat or so, no, I, we never had that. Now, we might have only had, I don't know, the one kind of milk to choose from or, you know, a skim milk and a full fat milk, but, you know, but... Do we need ten different brands of milk? Probably not, you know. Uh, so, so it's in that sense I had never that, you know. Yeah, sure, certain things say, you know. Well, we didn't have internet at that at, uh, at that time anyway, so it didn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a, um, you know, it's I don't want to glorify it, but there were certain things uh, that didn't work well, and we know all, all about those ones. But it's it's not the doom and gloom that sometimes you know things can be portrayed as. No, you, you're what you're describing. So my my father grew up in Prague, uh, and he left in '68 when. You know, pe people were agitating for change, and then the it got yes, the, not the not good quite quickly. Yeah, he he left on the night uh, that the tanks came in, yep. and um, yeah, he he says it's kind of similar. You know, he says, "Oh, you know, it was it was okay." You know, we knew there was other things. We knew there was something else. But that was definitely though. That was definitely communism and the party. He always talks about the 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 kids whose dads were in the party. They all had much nicer lunches than everybody else, and he was still looking. Go, well, aren't we were supposed to all have the same. Hang on, that's not quite what you know. He, he talks a bit, but he, but again, he says it was you know, it was a bit certainly a bit different. Um, the band I spoke to from your part of the world was called Rammstein, and they were fantastic. Mm. And, Actually, you know, they, from, from an area basically very close to where I'm, where I'm from. So, oh, cool, man. They were cool. They were interesting. <laughs> Funny were interesting enough, you guys. know, the first live concert of Rammstein I, I watched here in Sydney. <laughs> 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 so there you go. <laughs> Oh, uh, what year was that? Oh, goodness me. Now you've got me. Uh, around 2000, give or take, you know. I can't remember. Oh, I saw that tour yeah. and it was amazing. <laughs> my favorite quote, my favorite quote, did you, you saw it in Sydney. Did yes. you see it at the Enmore Theatre? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I know the story is going to blow your mind. At the time, I knew the promoter, Ken West, and um, he, Enmore Theatre, if you've never been, it's this beautiful, you know, heritage listed kind of glorious 1500 seater, 2000 seater, all made of wood, big curtains go to the sky. Ramstein's live show at the time was just nothing but propane and fire, yeah. okay? And 
he had the the boss of the Enmore Theatre on the phone going, okay, Ramstein, we can't have them set, we can't have any fire. There's a heritage-listed building. He goes, well, what's the problem? He goes, well, these curtains are fire-rated and they're, they're 15 metres uh, away from where they want to do this propane cannon. And he says, well, it says that the flame goes 12 metres. He says, mate, they're German. If it says it's 12 metres, it's 12 metres. It won't be 15. You're fine. <laughs> and it was, and it must have been amazing. It was a great time, yes, absolutely. <laughs> they were cool. I like. I really liked that band. They were. They were really interesting. What drove your, um, you know, what what drove your journey to Australia? You started, you know, computer science. You did computer science in in Germany. And what? When did Australia become an option? I guess um, part of me is, is that that drive to always, you know, I'm keen to to meet new people, to go to new cultures, different, you know, uh, different settings, uh, different languages. Um, so, you know, really immerse myself in that. And I've had, I wouldn't claim that I've seen everything of Europe that would be ridiculous and so, but I you know, had, had seen a fair bit of of that. So I, after I finished my master's studies, I thought like, well, um, if I want to do a PhD, let's do it somewhere that's not in Europe. Um, and, you know, then the options are sort of in the computer science area. Typically, either you go to North America um, or Australia became one of the options. And um, just by pure coincidence in, in the end, you know, uh, turned out to be um, at the uh, uh, Australian National University here in Canberra. That's how I first came to Canberra and then, you know, fell in love with the place here in Canberra. Um, so that's that. Um, but, yeah, there's a bit of further background. So as I already mentioned, so my family in the broader sense, they all either – very much in the STEM side, in the broad sense, or they're in in uh, medical area. So they are the some are doctors, uh, some are pathologists. Uh, but then we've got chemists and physicists. Um, we have engineers uh, from aerospace or aeronautical engineers um, to automotive engineers. Um, so I guess in that sense, that, that there was always a chance that I would end up in something like a STEM direction. Um, there was no push on that, and so. And um, when I was um, uh, after I finished year twelve of school, actually, I sort of. One that, um, well, you know, go to university, yeah, but what do you want to do? And at that time, we still had uh, the, the national service and the compulsory national service in, in Germany. So you either went to the armed forces or you could do 15 months uh, in a hospital, for example. And I, I did that. And so, because I wanted to understand, is, is going to medicine something you want to do? Or is it more the technical side that you want to do? Um, now, by ending up in the technical side, you might guess I didn't like the medical side. That's not quite right. What I didn't like was actually, I felt it was a lot of learning, um, really kind of learning by heart uh, and memorizing. And I'm not particularly good at that. I'm much more in the, into the creative side. And sort of computer science is actually an incredibly creative process for me. And it's really you know, software development or understanding problems and working things out. And so um, so that's how I know that. However, I've always had this love affair in that sense. Well, can we combine those two? So when I actually did my master's uh, studies um, was uh, within an industry setting at Philips, you know, the, the big Philips company that makes uh, yeah. TVs and radios, but they also are very big in the medical imaging world for X-ray machines, for CT scanners, for MRI scanners. So I actually did my, my master's work uh, on basically the next, next, next generation, so to speak, of uh, CT scanners, MRI scanners, which, you know, really fascinated me. So, and that kind of always stuck with me. So, how did I end up in Australia then? Yes, as I said, I wanted to, you know, go further afield. Um, was looking for potential universities to go to, um, funding, you know, you can't live on nothing. You've got to have some kind of scholarship or have a job or something, you know. Um, and it sort of worked out that this sort of area combining uh, the audio processing, so what we what we hear as sounds, and in particular speech, 
uh, combine that with the lip reading. So my, my PhD actually then became, can we teach computers how to lip read to improve the quality of um, their speech recognition? Now, these days we've got Siri and, and, and similar things that work extremely well. Now, Cassia mine back 25 years ago, that wasn't, we had, yes, we had some, you know, uh, those of uh, our listeners here who've been around for a while might remember IBM via voice or the Dragon Natural Speaking and all those things. Then they work. I, I wasted money on that software. And, and look, <laughs> and if, if you were in a quiet place and, and you know, it, it, it wasn't too bad, I'd say, but it wasn't perfect. It certainly wasn't nowhere yeah. near what we have these days. So there was an interesting point then. Um, also, like let's say we want to use that um, in a in a car. So at that time, the cars were typically not particularly quiet either, or an environment that are noisy. What do we do as humans? We actually turn to read the lips, even if we if we think we can't explicitly lip read. And, I'm, I'm a, and I wouldn't claim that I can, I'm a lip reader. We all have some ability to do that because we learn what sounds are related to what lip movements and how can we combine that information. So that's kind of that became our PhD topic then at the ANU. Yeah, so, so then uh, when I finished that, I actually went back to Germany for a couple of years on so and worked at um, what's, what's the Fraunhofer Institute there, which is kind of a bit like CSRO here in Australia. So um, somewhere between universities and in industry settings and so, so very practical um, applied research and so. And then, you know, job opportunity came up um, uh, here in, in Australia at the uh, National ICT Australia. So it's a um, research lab that was founded at the time in 2004. 2034. And yeah, I joined that. And well, the rest is history then, you know, going on from, from there to some startup companies and from, from, you know, eventually ending up here at the University of Canberra. So uh, clearly you, you're, you're qualified. Uh, And it sounds like you've always been driven by fascination, driven by curiosity and, you know, driven by how can you use this technology that can think and process things faster than humans can to improve the lives of humans, whether it be by detecting bone density in someone or helping someone understand something they otherwise couldn't understand, which is different to how can I hack someone's behavior to keep them playing this particular iOS app for as long as possibly possible. But we are now as, you know, at the time when you started in 98, when you started in Germany, and then when you came out to Australia, the, the, the level of handheld computing power would have not, like I wouldn't have been, exp- I wasn't getting exposed to AI manipulating my day using my Nokia, right? Uh, Snake didn't know, Snake didn't bait me with, an, a, you know, going, hey, you haven't played me in 42 minutes. Hey, do you want to beat your high score? Yet sometime around 2007, I started carrying around a thing in my hand that uh, could tell when I was awake, when I was asleep, what I liked looking at, um, how long I used it, and and give all kinds of feedback into the uh, programs and the applications that I was running. Uh, and soon, the currency of those applications stopped being utility and started being how, my attention. And, uh, you know, th- this is almost like a I want to say sinister use of the kind of work that, uh, or, or uh, you know, the kind of avenues that you've been, you know, quite, you know, heavily researching. But it's something that ex- everybody listening to this is listening usually on a smartphone. They're exposed to this every day. We've had these phones in our hands now for 15 years. The time to have the conversation about how much do we want to let AI algorithms det- dictate when we do or don't pick up our phones. Was that conversation one we should have had when we were still on landlines, Roland? 
<laughs> it probably would have been useful if we could have had it, you know. But then, you know, can you? That that requires a bit of a crystal ball gazing exercise then to yeah. know what's going to come, you know. So, um, look, I think it's this fascinating time that we are in, where perhaps development of technology outpaces our sort of ethical thinking around it. You know, uh, and that's not, not the first time in human history that has happened. And say, but it's. Um, I think we're only starting the, these conversations. So, what is actually acceptable use of AI? I mean, AI, just like any other technology, almost any technology is neither good or bad per se. It's what we as humans do with it. You know, so yeah, when you you took the example of you know your your phone or so or Facebook or any of those ones. Um, intruding to some extent and, and basically reminding you to, you know, clickbait you or to watch more or, you know, hey, you get a free level if, if you watch this ad or so. So, I mean, these are all, you know, obviously driven from, from a um, money-making point of view. But at the same time, there's plenty of good users um, out there as well of, of technology. So, it's, it's ultimately what we decide to do. And uh, as, uh, maybe um, I often use this example that, you know, um, I can go uh, into a hardware store and, and buy a hammer. Um, I don't need a license for that. Um, you know, no one's going to ask me. You know, have you been trained in how to use that or so? Uh, now, most of us would hopefully agree a hammer is a useful tool. You know, I can fix things around the house. I can um, put a nail up, and, and um, if I have a painting or a photo that I want to put up or whatever I want to do, but I could also use it theoretically at least to um, you know whack someone on the head with it and and do some serious damage. Now, we as society over years and decades and long time have basically developed this understanding that whacking someone on the head with a hammer is not a good idea. That's not that's not an acceptable use of a hammer. Whereas you know fixing your house is certainly an acceptable use. So the and that conversation is what we now need to have, and and what's starting around let's say in the broad sense AI and then smart technology and so on. What is an acceptable use? Um, so if it is to save someone's life, um, to detect I don't know a heart attack sooner, or um, to help. Um, um, in aged care or um, older residents or so. You know, lots of interesting uses for that. And I think most of us would agree, yeah, that, that's definitely good. Um, however, if it's sort of the more sinister and it's either intruding into our privacy or it's spying us 24-7 or, um, you know, certain devices that, that you can have at home for, for you know, Alexa and the likes and so that basically constantly listen 24-7 or <laughs> what's going on, you might be like, well, do I really want to have that in my house? Is that acceptable? And if it is, is it only sitting there? It's is it sort of independent, or is it streaming? You know, to to the Googles and Apples and and those guys twenty four seven. What's going on? You know, and, that, and that's what I mean by technology has advanced further and much more quickly than our conversations about. Well, hang on, <laughs> what should we actually be doing with this? You know, it's. You know, and we, and we did it with, and you're absolutely right, we did it with automobiles, all right? If you think when when cars, performance cars, like when the essentially the processing speed, the ability to put power into an engine started to really accelerate after World War II, suddenly you've got um, a, a car that can do, uh, you know, 150, 200 kilometres an hour and no seatbelts. And the speed limit in, well, in America at least, so the, they could do 70 miles an hour, which is about 120, 130 k's an hour. Um, that's the speed limit. No seatbelts. And no one, no one had a problem. And there's like, oh, death toll. But look, we can get from here to there. It's amazing how quickly I can drive. It's the best. You know, there was no conversations about, do we want to build this, you know, highway right in this nature reserve? It's like, no, but we need to get from this city to that city. They just, they just did it. And now, you know, here, here we are, then it, it took them a while, it took them about 20 years or so to have the seatbelt conversation. And it's an interesting parallel because the whole society was, some people were like, oh, I'm not, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me where my seatbelt, da, 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 da. 
And eventually it just became like, well, you're not going to die if you if you do. So then and that now we have seatbelts and cars. So we've already had this conversation around that's one example. We've done it around so many things. Where does the conversation start, Roland? How, I mean, it sounds like we're up against, uh, you know, how, how can we even talk about, you know, Facebook or Alphabet, which owns Google uh, uh, or, or Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and stuff? How do you even have these conversations with these just monolithic players um, who are in charge of so much of the things that we see and hear every day? Look, to be honest, I'm not sure at the moment. Well, no, there, there are people in in those in the fangs, as they're known, uh, to to you know to listen to that. But then um, I guess they've got state, uh, shareholders who you know who are not necessarily interested in that. So, so I think at the moment it's more up to us, uh, both as you know as, as consumers, uh, but also certainly as uh, in the academic world and and so on, to to talk about that and to make it a topic so that you know if there's enough of a groundswell, then people will listen in those companies will listen to that and and you know because if if we stop at some point using their products or, or turning them off as fast as we can turn them off and, and uh, decide for alternatives, then, you know, the business model doesn't work anymore. So, I mean, usually uh, we've seen that with, you know, the cigarette industry or so, you know, at first they, you know, they sponsored movies and extra to, hey, it's all good. Nothing nothing bad happens here. Nothing to see. It's all good. Uh, and, you know, sponsored research um, that's supposed to show that it's all safe to smoke. It's not, not nothing to see here. There's not no link shown whatsoever. Um, you know, so we have to be aware of that, you know, so, you know, it's a business. Those guys are business, running businesses, so they, their, their job is to make money, uh, primarily. And you know, unless they are particular altruistic or have you know uh, ulterior motives or so, uh, then you know that, that's that's their you know, their job. So it's up to us uh, in that sense to create enough of a groundswell, enough of noise to say, "Oh, hang on, well, that's actually not acceptable. I don't want to use that. I don't want to be part of that." You know, so it's. Uh, now then, you know, we can ask, talk about is there peer pressure, you know, so, <laughs> particularly with let's say with our you know teenagers or younger, you know, is, is that you know, um, and that's that's definitely interesting conversations, you know, um, that we have to have there. And I think you know many parents, uh, you know, I've got a sixteen-year-old son, and so these conversations are there, you know. So it, and again, it's it's not an easy one. You know, I wouldn't ever uh, pretend this is easy, but at the same time, we have to have it as well. You know? So and. Um, obviously, that can go into all sorts of other things around uh, social media use. Then, but overall, in terms of you know, the ethical use of AI, is uh, perhaps the broader topic really, and uh, or advanced technologies. So, you know, where do we draw the line? And that might be actually different for different people. Again, is there? You know, you mentioned the 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 speed of the car. Now, some people might say, I can safely drive at 150. You know, it's all very safe and so on. And if you if you go to go to Germany, some there's plenty of people would say like, oh yeah, 160 is fine. So no, no drama. And, you know, and the autobahn. You know, what's what's the problem? Um, but then you know, there are plenty of other people as well who would go like, well, yeah, probably 110 is plenty or so. Thank you very much. That's um, you know, um, it might not be as fast, but it's in terms of keeping us safe and reducing the the likelihood of accidents or if and if and when they happen. They're not they're going to be as bad, and so so it's it's a broader conversation that we as the as the population really need to have, and not assume that someone else will have the conversation for us. There will be you know people who lead those conversations, um, hopefully, and, and no, they are there. You know, but it's it's not you know as, as most things in life, if we are just passively waiting for something to happen, it probably is not going to happen. You know, <laughs> it's it's whatever you you pick, you pick it. No, sure, um, yeah, it's all good here. When we first met, we spoke uh, for a documentary I was making with SBS uh, about a project uh, you're a part of, which involved 
using uh, AI and an algorithm to determine body language. And if some person uh, and their body language were put them at risk in and around a, a train stations. And you come to this fascinating point of what you discussed before. It's you know, utility versus privacy is the great trade-off with with tech. Gmail is unbelievable as a product. It it is without without competitor when it comes to utility. What it costs me is that it reads my emails. It you know knows everywhere I am, knows what I'm doing, knows who I'm meeting, and I don't know what they do with that data, what they do with that information. Right? That's that's the cost to me. The TikTok is free. But what's the cost of TikTok? Well, it knows exactly what you like and it might even be able to nudge you towards, you know, one way or the other, which is another conversation. Um, so when when developing something that is, you know, like the project you're working on, which is using footage of people in a, in a essentially public space, a train platform, they may not realise that their body language is being assessed by a computer, where's the where's the conversation there around? Is it as simple as a sign as you walk in, going, "Hey, by the way, by walking in, just so you know, we might, you know, if if we notice that you don't move for four straight trains, someone's going to come and tap you on the shoulder and ask if you're okay." Like, is that uh, where's that conversation about utility versus versus privacy in in, in that sort of field? Again, you know, where, where some of that started, actually, um, we've been involved in, in some prior work uh, to understand uh, mental health assessment, in particular, say, for example, on depression. Um, and, you know, if, if we assess um, human faces, if we assess body language, if we assess our vocal um, characteristics as well, actually, um, there's a lot in there. And it's very, you know, it's very similar to what um, psychologists uh, do as well. And so, and I should point out that, you know, that kind of work is, is never meant to be to replace people, but it's basically trying to assist them. So I always like uh, to think of it, you know, like the uh, the equivalent of a blood pressure monitor that that measures things, that observes things, and then you know quantifies it. It doesn't make a decision. Um, that, that's you know up to the clinicians. So that's where kind of some of that work. And then the idea, well, if we can understand body language, uh, or to some extent, we can look at also behaviors, not just the body language, but you know, if someone's pacing around, um, if they uh, take their shoes off. Um, if they leave their luggage behind, uh, their belongings behind, uh, if they headbutt against the wall or so. So these are what you might consider sort of unusual behaviors within a certain context. You know? So if you take the, the train station, so for the vast majority of people, you go to a train station, you wait for your train, uh, and then you get on and you know you, you, um, the train takes off and, that, and that's basically there is. And then you, the next way we want to uh, get off, you get off the train and walk out. So in that sense, we have a fairly good understanding of what a, um, a normal behavior is. Um, so if we're now looking for unusual behaviors, you know, in this most simplest uh, way, we can define it as well, something that doesn't fit into that other category. So, uh, for example, as I said, you know, someone pacing around. Um, so you mentioned this, you know, train after train passing, they're not getting on. You know, okay, if there's different train lines coming through that station, maybe there's a good reason because, you know, it's going to X and you want to go to Y. But eventually, you know, um, you know we can link that to the timetable. Um, and, and you're still there. Okay, why are you still there? Why are you um, either close to the edge? Uh, why are you sitting in a particular spot? Um, why you keep checking on the trains? And so all of these behaviors basically sort of uh, would allow us to some extent, again, nothing's 100%, you know, but would sort of, 
um, say, oh, okay, something's not not normal here. Something's different, you know. So, and and then as you mentioned, that's a question: what do you, um, how do we interact with that? How do you, do we alert the public? I mean, these days, you know, uh, station masters are time of the past. You know, yes, there's um, sure there's loudspeakers and there's CCTV cameras and so yes, and that's that's it. But then if we take the Sydney train network, I think it's something around thirteen thousand cameras in there. So it's not a it's not humanly possible to watch all cameras for all actions in there. So is, is technology advanced enough to understand these kind of behaviors so that, you know, people centrally could be alerted? And, and you know, at the very least, you might, if we can alert the, the train driver to slow down, for example, that might be a simple action. Or if there's a... Um, uh, you know the the uh, other passengers, or bystanders. Can they be you know, as you said, you know, tap on the shoulder, saying, you know, are you okay? I said. So we, ultimately, we I guess we we sort of weigh up what is of the um, the cost benefit ratio. If I put it this way, you know, so the, the benefit um, of you know if if we're saving lives, you know, and I think. I hope that most of our listeners here would agree that you know that's generally uh, a worthy exercise um, versus the cost. Now, sure, yes, so there's a cost in terms of the technology, but there's also a cost in terms of disruption to the network, for example, if an incident happens. Yeah, so, and that's uh, the cost to the operator. Um, so let's say Sydney trains can't run the trains for a few hours because the police need to come and, and investigate and so. But then there's also the the human cost um, of of a train driver. You know, so that that you know from a post traumatic stress uh, disorder for example oh, you know, yeah. uh, maybe you're not coming back at all you know um what about yeah. the, uh, the bystanders you know uh, who might have witnessed mm. that as well um what about even just simple things if let's say because the trains weren't running we had to jump onto the buses we arrived at work late for an hour um no might not sound much to us or say, but if you have, I don't know, a million people arriving late for an hour there's a cost to that as well so there's all these factors in there so we you know then in, in that particular context or so, uh, the Sydney trains or so, and so it's transport would have to weigh up, okay, so is the potential intrusion into the privacy of people, uh, or, you know, watching behaviors within the context of, of the train station, um, is that okay? Is, is that worthy um, in terms of if we're saving lives? That's it. Now, Interesting. Then we come into questions: What happens to the data? You know, is that is that centrally stored? No, it's, it's way too much. <laughs> um, is it? Can it be done in a in a way that basically, you know, things are filtered, things are you know, decisions are made there already. So, for, uh, you know, these days we can have camera systems that have computing powers as well. So, a concept known as edge computing. So, it's like a mini computer that's attached to the camera, so to speak. And that always, you know, whatever the task is, for example, scanning for particular behaviors. And only when something is spotted that's this unusual, then it's being uh, transmitted. So, we don't have this, you know, sort of police state, everything's, everyone's watched the whole time. And so, you know, is, is that is that in a way? Now, what's the, again, is that technically possible? On a grand scale, probably not yet. You know, that, that we're not there yet, and so. But then there's the the cost of installing that, and the cost of maintaining that, um, and it's, it's you know it comes very very quickly to a very um, interesting question ultimately. And this is, I guess, you know, the the COVID pandemic has shown that what is um, as horrible as it sounds, what is a human life worth? Are we happy to pay any price for it, so to speak? Are we saying, well, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to put a price on it, and that's not not you know, from an ethical point of view. It's it's whether it's in a hospital with ICU, you know, and then very advanced technology uh, to keep someone alive, and then you know in a potentially similar way, you know, we talked about cars before, or in, in terms of let's say uh, preventing um, suicide at a train station. So, um, what are we accepting basically? And then you know, I think the 
from 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 my heart, I was going to say, well, the only acceptance is really zero. <laughs> You've seen these ads on TV about you know what's what's an acceptable number of people dying on the roads, and you know, well, yeah, it should be zero. I mean, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't want anyone uh, dying there or accept that. No, well, that's the number. We're okay. So that, that's a you know a really broader um, question then. And so, but I think the the conversation. Not not specific to that, but is is ultimately you know, a uh, if I'm an operator or if I'm running a business, it's a cost to me, versus the humanity side of well you know if we value human life as as high as possible or or it's the highest then that should take precedence and and probably in, I mean as as a realist as a pragmatist you probably become somewhere in between that you know that's that's two extremes, yeah. and we're certainly as you mentioned we're seeing that with the COVID pandemic around. I do not want to be the people making the choices, but there's choices being made about borders opening, about mask mandates, about check-ins, about I would never want to be the person that makes those policy decisions because they would have had to go, well, how many educated residents is too many? Where we have the you know, triage systems where we have to decide that, you know, well, actually, you know, this 80-year-old or whatever it is, we're not going to put on a, on a ventilator because we only have one and there's a 20-year-old and that the 20-year-old has a better chance of surviving. You know, horrible yeah, decisions. I, I don't. I don't want to make. I don't want to make those choices. But I know if you can get some sort of ethical AI machine that we can plug these <laughs> problems into that spits out. <laughs> that's the key. Because I think that's the. You know, the, for me, sometimes the. You know, the conversation around climate change is often framed as cataclysm, doom. It's all over. Give up. Because that's the that's the most emotionally triggering, easy to communicate version, right? So there is also the conversation of like never before in human history has an economic externality been so easily predictable and we can even tell you what it's going to be like in three years, five, 10, 20, 50 years. You want to make billions of dollars? Solve that problem there now and you're away, you know. There's another way to frame it. There's another frame of like, well, what can we do instead? What's what's possibility around this? What's life look like if energy is free? What's life look like if if you know we have nothing but sustainable closed loop manufacturing processes? You know, that's you know, it's there's so much upside because a lot of the AI conversation is I'm not going to name a country, but it's you know they're always watching you. There's an app that rates you whether you've been a good citizen or a bad citizen. It makes your home loan hard, like. That's the that's that's the thing that people are afraid of. Is that the thing that should realistically we be afraid of that kind of thing? I wouldn't say we we need to be afraid of it. We need to be aware of it. We need to be aware that, that you know that, that's a potential misuse of, of technology. But maybe I'm the eternal optimist. You know <laughs> that you know I think. Um, there's just as much uh, of an important conversation and, and perhaps an even more interesting conversation about the positive, you know, what can we do with it? What what can we achieve with that? You know, so um, as you mentioned before, you know, our, our little buddies here, our little smartphones and so, you know, they have more compute power than what took us to the moon. So maybe we should do something more smart with these ones, you know, so uh, they're probably still not going to fly apart from me chucking it across the room. But um, in terms of, you know, the, the compute power that's available to us these days, you know, so I remember when, when I, so I probably touched my, not my, so the first time I came in contact with a computer, so to speak, with a keyboard and a screen, it was all green letters at the time, that was all there is, there was no graphics or anything, uh, would have been sort of the 1980s. Yet in in was that forty years time yeah thirty forty years time you know we've we've come a long way that 
you know, yes, I suppose in the science, science fiction uh, literature and movies at the time, we thought about, you know, self-driving cars. And guess what? In these days, you know, yet, yet not not yet perfect, not yet in every situation, but you know, uh, that that's not far away. You know, we can probably see that in. You know, if I take my crystal ball out, probably in the next ten years or so, we have at least in the, within, let's say, city constraints. Maybe not in, on a dirt road in, in the middle of nowhere, and so. But you know, those things can be solved. You know, because we've come so far in that. So there's a lot of potential that we really have. And you might know, um, you know, the things that I've mentioned about uh, in, in our conversations beforehand around sort of medical technology, health technology that's enhanced by AI, that's enhanced by machine learning that. That can help. Now, yes, we can. Often we look at it, let's say, whether it's in Australia here or in Germany or so, where I'm from or so, uh, as a first world problem. Okay, so yes, oh, we've got good doctors, we've got great hospitals, we've got, you know, do we really need it? What about the privacy of this? What is that? Um, now, sometimes we come and say, okay, well, actually, for example, in, in uh, mental health or so, we do not actually have enough. Um, psychologists in in this country and in many other countries, we um, do not have enough mental health care. And so, so then maybe technology can assist fixing, or well, not fixing, but at least elevating that problem. So it can help us. Um, at, what about aged care? When you know, obviously right now it's really a lot about aged care and then the lack of staff and then the conditions. Again, it's not about replacing machines, but can we free up? Can we use robots? Can we use uh, intelligent systems there um, to free up the mundane tasks of, of cleaning, of, of uh, driving the meals uh, around or so, so that the, the staff are actually freed up to spend more quality time with the, with the residents uh, and have more you know, interactive product, um, projects, have um, social work, um, social context. Can we use... Um, you know, again, we've come a long way with uh, video calls, and and so we have, you know, to some extent, uh, virtual reality systems. And so, um, is there something that you can use to overcome loneliness in old age, um, to stay in contact, even so physically, you're not there, you know, you're uh, separated. Nothing in Australia, we certainly know that. You know, it's it's a big country and very sparsely populated in some parts. You know, um, so the the tyranny of the physical distance can we overcome that with technology? And so, um, so it doesn't matter whether you're in Perth or in Sydney or in in Broken Hill or wherever you are. So, um, you know, if if your if your friend, your your sister, your brother, whatever lives in in Brisbane, you can. Uh, through virtual reality, uh, have that feeling that you are there, actually. You know? So that, that's still within the first world. Now, if you took, um, let's say, I don't know, Africa, let's say, uh, or, or other sort of developing um, countries and so where healthcare is, you know, a fraction of what we have here. And so um, yet, you know, smartphones, uh, often many countries actually have far more advanced with, you know, 4G and 5G and then high network speeds and wireless. And they kind of skip the whole landline thing, you know, as uh, a big rollout. And uh, yes, so, well, is it better than there? Let's say if we have an app that can help uh, a general practitioner uh, with a, a decision or with a um, analysis, is this someone who's showing symptoms of depression, for example? Um, and it's better than having nothing. So there's often the question there is really, is something that maybe it's not perfect, maybe it works 80% correct, is that better than having nothing? Where sort of, you know, we might say, well, if it's not 100% correct, I'm, I'm not going to trust it, I'm not going to, you know. So it's, I think these conversations that we sometimes have in, in, in let's say, from, from our, where we live or so, can be very much a sort of first world problem. And I think it's, there's a whole range out there of what very simple um, smartphone-based technology can achieve. Um, in in rural settings in, in developing countries and so on. And I was just reading 
something yesterday that basically um, an alternative to PCR tests, uh, not just for COVID and so, but actually for other things uh, that you can do at home with very simple um, stuff. And that's then uses the uh, power of, of the camera and, and the processing power of your smartphone to actually within about 15 minutes do an assessment. And that worked for, so they, the authors um, claimed uh, on the normal flu that worked on, on COVID, it worked on other things. And so it's, it's really interesting. You know, the, the checks that we, you might have, um, if you've gone to a, um, had a skin check for, you know, for, for any sort of uh, molds or so, you know, most of the times nowadays, at least in my experience, you know, the, the doctors ask you, take a photo of it. You know? There's actually apps there that you can use that can basically track, um, you know, what did the mole look like last time or, you know, you know, six months ago. Or so. And you can actually have see, does it grow? Has it changed its size? Has it changed? And so, and that's, and again, it's not to make a diagnosis, but to like, look, you, you probably really should see someone, you know, this is, uh, so I think there's a lot of positivity that we, that we can find in there. And yes, we do need to be aware and we need to have these conversations about what's not acceptable, but we shouldn't say, well, because of potential negativity, that's why we're not doing it at all. And I think that that's because someone will probably do it anyway. Because then we end up in a world where there's no hammers and hammers are really handy. Exactly. And we wouldn't have houses if we didn't have hammers. That's the, I used one yesterday. Really? I have three in my house. One's a rubber one. Very useful with the paving out the back when it comes all loose after the rain. <laughs> Super handy. But it's what what you say is, and it, it's not a stretch to think, you know, what what's my phone got in it? My, I mean, my phone, for goodness sake, it uses the accelerometer to tell me because I've uh, since we spoke, Roland, I've had a total hip replacement uh, on the right hand side, and the accelerometer in my phone. Uh, for the first four or six months after it, I had the hip replacement, kept saying you're at an elevated fall risk because it's it's noticing my gait has changed because mm. I'm favouring one side over the other. And like this is a signal going, you probably want to go get this checked out. And that's just a simple thing using the accelerometer on my phone, accelerometer on my phone, knowing when I'm walking and what my gait is doing and how my feet are hitting the ground. And uh, it's not a stretch to think well and i've i've been very ill in the past when i was uh, you know really bad um if i had picked up checked locked and put back down my phone let's say 97 times in an hour it might go hey man um you probably need to take a breath here <laughs> here's a breathing exercise or here's some numbers that you've told me to call uh when you get like this like and that's not that's not a stretch to think that that's how helpful that could be, just showing you a simple breathing exercise or some sort of down regulation. I mean, obviously, I was very sick, and I, you know, the phone could not deliver any psychotics to me, which I needed. But uh, you know, you can, it's not a stretch to think of like how that could be handy. You know what I mean? Exactly. And, and and that's 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 the important part, particularly around healthcare. I mean, you, you mentioned you know developing world. You think of places in the Indonesian archipelago where you know the, the doctors are two ferry rides away, yet you've got this you know Android you know. Fully up to date Android phone in your hand that's at 5G speeds. That could be mm. really, really handy. Yeah, and something that, um, you know, so I've been uh, lucky enough uh, to, uh, for the last well, about 15 years now, have been working with the Black Dog Institute in Sydney. And um, uh, so, really been very eye opening. And, and you know, I'm, I say, by, by training, I'm a computer scientist and, and I know that world. And so, but, um, you know, coming back to that where we started, you know, that, that interest, you know, in around health technology. And, and so, so it's uh, even here in Australia. So um, let's say you have been diagnosed, uh, and so, and but you probably only see your clinician every you know three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. Now, what happens in between? Um, 
now you know typically uh, we're asked to uh, self journal and, and write about or have a bit of a diary and then what's going on in your life what how you're feeling and so um and, and then there's there's certainly value in that and so but it's still a very subjective view and, and that and so now what if um let's say we have our, our smartphone that that's you know I don't know let's say once a day or so gives us a little task or something to watch uh, and, and while it's doing that it's analyzing our facial expressions analyzing how we're sounding and so not not 24 7 we're talking about you know one minute or so something that measures spontaneous so we you know it's a different task every day different things because we found um if we have that sort of spontaneous information uh, we can actually we probably only need about 10, 20 seconds of, of that of quality data. But if you have that every day now, imagine how useful that is uh, to, to, the, to the doctors, to the clinicians, uh, to the psychologists to really see, well, is therapy working? Whatever therapy it might be. So do we need to change something? You know, you, uh, what's going on there? So rather than this, okay, I'll see you in four weeks and then you'll, we'll have a chat or so. And it, you know, potentially can also alert if, if we see a drastic change um, because, you know, whatever might have happened. And so then uh, is that, you know, where, you know, potentially uh, hope can be called or someone coming in to check on you. And, and so, so I think you know, there's a lot of potential in there, even for us here, um, that um, I have, in my view, that's not a creepy one. That's not a spying on you twenty four seven, listening into every conversation you have. But it's a deliberate one. That's you know, if I, when I go to physiotherapy and you know, they, they guess what? They sent me a little app with a little program and saying here, do this, and then you know, I, I click which exercises I do every day, and <laughs> that's so. And and so they have a view on you know what, what's been happening. So it's it's that sort of thing. Um, that, that I believe, you know, we can really make a difference in, in people's life uh, lives in here. So it's, yeah, fascinating. There's a lot been, particularly after what happened in uh, North America at the start of last year around the, you know, the people climbing the walls at the, the Capitol building about, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, just regular human beings would kind of slowly and slowly nudged towards having their behaviour nudged towards this kind of extreme um, extremism, you know, and, you know, this has been documented all, all over the world. Are we really that easy a creature to figure out that, you know, how much processing power does it take to have me do something that I don't know I'm – and this might be a thing, Roland, this might be a thing that's nudging me towards getting 20 minutes of exercise every day. This might be a thing that's nudging me towards making sure I communicate with someone face-to-face -face, uh, a couple times a week. This might be something that nudges me towards making sure my fridge is full of nutritious food. Are we, are we that easy to kind of – I guess su suggest are we that open to suggestion and <laughs> and behaviour mm. change that we it could be happening we don't know. That very good question, you know. <laughs> um, look, I'm I'm not a behavioural psychologist, so you know I'm just having a stab at here. But yeah, definitely not not an expert in any of this. Uh, look, I think it's well documented, as you said, that uh, certain uh, social media algorithms are designed to reinforce what you know. So as you said, as it checks on what we're doing, and then we'll try to elicit. You know, or give us similar content again because hey, if we like that, you're probably going to like this. If we're not clicking on certain things, it figures out okay, you probably don't like that. Um, now, at times, it can deliberately stir the pot and basically throw in something that it pretty much knows that you're not going to like this one, and let's let's see if that agitates because you know ultimately the goal of um, the social media companies is to keep you on that for as long as possible. 
So to show other ads or to have whatever it is, then, you know, basically monetize it. The goal is there from their point of view to keep you on and engaged, if I put it in that way, as for as long as possible. Now, our own intrinsic uh, notion should really be the opposite. Well, it's I want to use it, but I don't want to use it. You know, I don't want to be glued to it. Um, so it's uh, and again, uh, you know, others have uh, far better uh, knowing about addiction, and so and that sense becomes a form of addiction. So it triggers something in us. Um, that, that I believe is similar to sort of a, the, the same reflex or the same conditioning that leads to addiction, you know, whether that's on, on gambling, whether that's drugs, whether it's on alcohol, whether it's, you know. So there's obviously something in, in our brain that, that uh, can be triggered um, and that can lead to a form of addiction that I need to check this. I need to see what's happening. I could, you know, whether it's the fear of missing out, whether it is loneliness and, and this way, you know, social media provides you with a way of connecting to other people who apparently have the same views as you. So you're feeling part of a group and you know, as, as human beings, we are certainly social animals in that sense, you know, we're you know, the vast majority of us. Um, so it's, it's, it's basically... Um, deliberately triggering some of those very intrinsic reflexes in us, I think, um, that, that we have. And, you know, some, some people are more susceptible to that, just like with any other addiction, you know, uh, than others. Just a quick moment away from Roland to uh, take a break and let you know that if you'd like an ad-free version of the show, it's available now. Patreon.com slash Osher is where you can get it. And, you know, what's fantastic is there's also... Uh, video, full video episodes of the show available at Patreon. Thank you so much to everyone that's gone on board there with Patreon. Super, super helpful to help us keep the lights on and pay all the people that make the show with me. I don't make it by myself. I have plenty of people that help me make it. And it costs money. These people are great at what they do. They're the best in the country and I, I pay them what they're worth. And Patreon goes a long way to help me do that. If you can support that way, please do. If that's something that you're unable to do right now, totally fine. Please support the show by sharing it. Uh, text it to somebody, SMS, whatever, share, hit share in the corner of your app, tell someone about it, find a bit that you like, find one of the things I put on Instagram of a previous episode and tag someone in it. Like, just share the episode, tell someone about it. That really, really helps. And just like and subscribe and rate the show wherever you can. You might be surprised, but that really does go a long way to get more people listening to the show because people come and go all the time. So we're going to get back to Roland in just a moment, um, but we do need to play some ads. And you might hear them, you might not, depending on where you are and what you're listening to. Here we go. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Those, those, uh machines those things you're building are only really as good as the input they can get so you mentioned before using a, a smartphone for example the sensors are the microphone it can hear uh, it can see what's the sensor or what's the sensor development that excites you most what's the thing that's going to unlock just like 
is is it something that measures uh, you know uh, what I'm exhaling? Is it something that measures the the taste of my skin? What's what's the sensor that will really change the game here? Oh, God. Now, um, I'm actually probably almost going to answer that. I don't think it's going to be a single sensor. I don't think there will be a single thing, you know. So if we think of, of us as human beings, you know, with our different senses, and, and uh, while we're not always using all of them simultaneously, certainly in, in terms of understanding our environment, in, in terms of understanding other people, um, you know, sometimes it's smell, sometimes it's looking at things, sometimes it's listening, sometimes it's touching, sometimes it's a combination of those ones. So... I think there's really two parts in that then. One, uh, different horses for courses, as they say. <laughs> so uh, some sensors or some combinations of sensors will be more useful for certain things. The other aspect is um, combination. So the, what we in academic terms call the multimodal information. So I, I, right, uh, when we started, I talked about you know, the lip reading part of my PhD to make speech recognition better. You know. So we could just do the audio, and that gave us a certain level. Now, if we add the video to it and we're doing it right, hey, we can make it accurate by, you know, improve accuracy by over 30%. So it's, it's that sort of thing. So, uh, But what I'm fascinating is, is actually this simple technology that we already have to a large extent. You know? So, you know, if I have a simple webcam, for example, or a camera on my phone, um, I can actually use that to uh, work out what my heart rate is. I don't need a heart rate sensor. <laughs> so it's even so I look at you know if I'm looking at your face here I can't see you know what your heart rate is and so but you know if we were using that uh, the same sort of algorithms behind it to, to analyze that I could work out oh it's actually 68 beats per minute at the moment you know so it's 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 things that we already have so it's not so much about hey the latest craziest gadget and so I mean that's that's fancy and that's interesting and so but can we embed this now um, into let's say our clothing for example so it's it's there without being you know really obvious that it's there. Um, so um, can it be in the soles of our shoes? So is that another way of measuring gait, for example, or changes in gait? Now for for the elderly people, for example. So a lot of research has gone into, for example, uh, detection of faults. Now that that's that's very good and very interesting, and you know from an emergency point of view. But what if we do prevention? So it actually never comes to the emergency. Wouldn't that be even better? I mean, yeah. So okay. So then, how do you do it? Yes, well, well, we could put cameras everywhere, but that's a bit, you know, back to the privacy question. You know, who wants to be, you know, in that sort of surveillance? You know, wherever you walk, every time, you know, someone's watching you. you know? Probably not what we want to do. Now, yes, we could have smartphones. Okay, um, what if it's uh, someone? Um, you know, with dementia, so or, or you know, even mildly, they forget that they leave their phone on, um, you know, in in their room when they're walking somewhere. So it's it's more likely that we put our shoes on <laughs> if we go somewhere, or that we have shoes on already. So what if it's integrated in there? So and as we're walking, we can see that uh, over time there are small changes in in our gait. So it's not the big trip hazard. Yes, that's an interesting question too. And so if there's something on the ground and we stumble over it, sure. Um, but you know the, these you know almost imperceivable changes if we just look day on day. But if we you know, look over a longer period of time, we can see. Oh, hang on, their gait has widened because they're stabilizing. They're shortening their steps because they're trying to be more stable. And so, so it's that kind of thing that uh, integration into everyday life, um, in in a way uh, that that's useful, that is uh, privacy preserving. Um, you know, that's I think where sort of what really fascinates me and where we go with that. Yeah, and you don't have to look far as far as, you know, you know, we it's sort of another example of the technology leaping ahead of of where we are. The, the first um, backscatter 
um, uh, airplane uh, scanners, like the one above the X-ray, the one you have to stand there. I remember when they first came out in America, there was no anonymizing of the data. It was just like, here's the picture. And essentially you're looking at a naked person standing there in the middle of an airport thing, all right? And, and that's not great. Why you don't? Do you like terrorism? Is that the problem? No, I don't like terrorism, and I don't want three hundred people putting their shoes back on, looking at a, a black and white picture of my penis. Uh, you know, which is what happened. Absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it, it is this idea of like, well, who has access to the data? How can we anonymize the data? Could what happens to the data once it's done, giving us the usefulness? Um, uh, you know, if that data could be more useful on a grander scale, can, can can you anonymize that once it's gone, once it's stopped being useful to me in this minute, in this hour, in this day? And that that's that's all part of the questions that we need to ask going forward. When you, you said your son's 16, so a digital native, I have our eldest, her, her learning of how to be a social person is, involves a smartphone. Mine involved a landline, and at the beginning, post letters, writing letters, but it involved yep. a landline and face-to-face Absolutely. at best. And, and I see how that extension of her immediate circle of friends uh, changes the way they interact with each other, interact with the world. When you look at your, your, your kids, uh, when you look at their, their cohort, what are you excited for, say, for them around AI goes in the next, say, 10 years or so? And what are you... What are you worried about? Let's start with the worry first. So the worry is the uh, the, the dark side um, of of uh, social media, the dark side of you know internet overall. The sort of um, and I think we we hear plenty of stories, uh, unfortunately, about that. And um, you know sometimes we wonder is it just that we hear more stories these days um, about you know uh, young kids being groomed for for other purposes, uh, or has it always happened and now it's just more out there and we hear more about it now. So is, is so is technology an enabler or is it just that we actually hear more about it? Perhaps it's a bit of both. So so there's there's that side to it and there's the um the, I think the question that uh, in my mind is still unanswered. Um so if our you know our kids growing up with that and it's a different way of growing up than what we had. Now our, our first uh, reaction might be oh it must be bad. And if it's different to what we have it must be bad. Um, well, maybe maybe it is, maybe it is not. You know, I mean, it, you know, I try to be as open-minded about it as possible because you know it certainly has its um, potential positives in terms of being hey, a much larger circle that you. So again, the, the physical distance is not no longer a problem. You know, it used to be okay, the kids in your street or the kids in your neighborhood or maybe in your school or in in your sports club or so. But that's about it. You know, you didn't have, you know across town, let alone across the country or so. No, that's, and maybe, you know, again, I'm old enough to remember, you know, pen pals, you know, wrote letters to someone there, so those kind of things, and oh God, there's someone in Norway, you know, or whatever country, you know, so it's, it's just a different form of that these days. So it's, you know, so the, the circles are, you know, there, and, you know, can be, well, Someone suggested, well, maybe it's the knitting circle, you know, the New South Wales knitting circle. So, you know, again, it doesn't matter whether you are in, in Eden or in Broken Hill or, you know, wherever you are, you can connect about whatever your favorite hobby is. And that that's so, um, so there's, there's definitely positives around that. Um, I think we, we sometimes forget that even so our kids grow up with it so they know which button to press and, and how to do it quickly. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the understanding of, of the consequences. 
And then I guess that's where we as parents have to really come in or uh, parents and school and, and, and overall education. And so is, is around when and where do we bring the ethical questions in? So bullying someone over the phone is just as unacceptable as bullying someone in, in the schoolyard or anywhere. And that's, you know, so just because it's a different tool that looks like it's more anonymous or so, uh, or trolling on, on, uh, on social media and so, doesn't mean it's, it's, it's acceptable. So again, we come back to what's acceptable, what's not acceptable use of technology. And so, so it's... Um, so those are, those are the, the kind of worries and, and dangers and so that we have. At the same time, the potential of what we can actually do with this. And um, I guess when I grew up, it was still very much about these sort of very big scale systems. You know, it was the bigger, the better, so to speak. And then, wow, that's powerful. That's yeah. To some extent, we actually have the sort of reverse now because everything, no, not everything, um, particularly electronics in that sense, have become smaller yet. They have become a lot more powerful. And as we said, you know, this this little smartphone here can do a lot of things computationally that uh, even with the biggest computers in the 1950s, 1960s couldn't have been done. So it's 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 amazing what we have at hand. So that will open up so many more opportunities, um, so many more potential things. We have in these conversations at the universities where, like, you know, we just have uh, our semester starts next week, so we've got. Uh, new students coming in, you know, just finished, let's say, year 12 and so. And then, you know, before they come, the students or the, the parents ask, well, is that a future-proof career? Is, is it, if they study X, whatever X is, is that, you know, are they going to have a job and so? And, well, I guess it, one is say, well, it's probably going to change when that's the nature of, you know, the, the world is changing. Uh, and then, you know, the, the days where you had one career or one job or so, that, that they are probably over. And, you know, if I look at my own, career i've had all sorts of different jobs um you know over the years so but it's it's an opportunity as well yes it can be you know we uh, might say it's scary and so and yes certain jobs will disappear but then at the same time this technology will require new ideas will require people to develop it further will require maintenance will require you know so entire new jobs that we didn't even think about five years ago will probably pop up 10 years from now or five years from now so it's we've seen that in in the history of you know when before cars became a thing there was no car mechanic or there was no or when electronics went into you know, big time into uh cars or so well there was no uh car electronics uh, you know specialist either i say no? it's so i mean it's it's again one of those revolutions if you want to put it this way a bit of a big word but one of those quite big changes that will occur and yeah maybe i don't know look i don't want to pick on any but i know they say accountants or so in, in a, or conveyancing could be probably automated to a large extent you know because you do, okay so those jobs might not be particularly secure but then you know anything that involves uh people uh, that involves creativity that involves the social aspect and so i think we're still a long way away from even ever to come to that being replaced so i think we shouldn't well, that goes for any time of uh, i guess in, in human history we like to hold on to what what the past was because we knew it. It's it's sometimes the fear of mm. the unknown, but we should be yeah. just as optimistic and positive about the future. Uh, yes, it is unknown, but uh, hey, if it's unknown, it means we can actually create it, we can generate it, uh, we can shape it. Yeah, we can decide what the rules exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> That's an important thing to remember, and I, I can't think of a better way to, to to wrap this up. Roland, you are just the best. I'm so grateful that I got to have this conversation with you. Uh, I'm sure there's many people listening who worry about a lot of this stuff, and the way that you put it, the way that you talk about it, the way that you're like, yeah, well, it could be this, but it could be that. It's it. That's I think that's that's a message that needs to be out there because, as I said, it can be just sold with doom. You know, the AI can be sold with doom, but. Um, 
It could also be the difference between vastly, uh, you know, more positive health and well-being outcomes for way more people than we have, uh, you know, counsellors or doctors for, which is amazing and, and, and super duper cool. Um, have a great night at the University of Canberra. Thanks for your time, mate. And that was Roland Gurk, Professor Roland Gurk. He's very active online, very active on Twitter. He's a fascinating guy and I couldn't thank him enough for taking the time to speak with me. I hope you open your phone or you hand your phone to a kid or you do that in a way that's a little more informed now. But I also hope that you can see the scope of how these technologies are coming into our lives already, whether we like it or not, and how that we can all make an informed choice together about how we'd like those things to play a role with us moving forward and where those boundaries should be. It's been great to, to have this chat. I'm real, I've been looking forward to this chat for a very long time. I'll be back here on Wednesday uh, with a quick version of uh, something from the back catalogue called Better Make It Quick. Thank you so much for listening and big thanks to everyone that we make the show today. Andy Ma, who cut the episode, Bruce Steele on research and support, Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything, and of course, Mike Mills, who made all the music, Toe Hider on Instagram and Twitch. She's on Twitch most Thursday nights. I think he's fantastic. All right, I'm going to... Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, something I had to do next. It's on my list, which is in my phone. Because if I don't, if I don't know what I'm going to do next, I've already made a list this morning, because so I can get distracted. I'm like, what's next? There it is. So when I look at my phone, I'll know what's next. I think all I have to do now is stop recording this. Yeah, you might hear an ad here too. Okay. Until I speak to you next. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 